Dynamite Dealer presents your favorite friends from Gasoline Alley. Hold it, Wilmer. Hold it till I get this phone. Okay, Skizek. Wallet and Bobble Garage, Skizek's wallet speaking. What's that? Oh, yes, sir, we can fix it. We can fix anything on four wheels. Sure, we'll be waiting for you right here in Gasoline Alley. Yes, it's Gasoline Alley, the comic strip that's a favorite in more than a hundred great newspapers. In this episode, The Adventure of the Musician's Ignition, the very slippery Mr. Chiggers comes in with a very strange request that his auto lights be wired for sound. First, a word from the friendly Autolite dealer in your own hometown. And now, Gasoline Alley. construction firm, the Cutler Company, has just moved to town, and of course all the garages are trying to get the Cutler repair work. Well, this morning, Wilmer has not yet shown up for work, and Skeezix has just entered the garage office, when... Wallet and Bobble Garage, Skeezix Wallet speaking, good morning. Mr. Wallet, this is Mr. Cutler, the Cutler... Actually, it's the Ink Stud speaking. <laughs> this is Ink Studs, the radio show where we talk about comics today. I'm joined... By my good friend Colin Upton. Hello. Hello. And I have two guests who I'm going to bring on the air now. I have Jeet here. Oh. I got you there, Jeet? Yep. I'm and here. Mr. Chris Ware? Hello. I got you? Okay. I was going to turn you guys up. Don't mind me while I uh, test my sounds. Um, Jeet and Chris have been working hard on so far three volumes of the uh, daily collections and recently released the Sunday's collection from uh, Sunday Press Books, is the name of it, I think. And uh, it's a beautiful edition, the one of the largest books I've seen. Yep, it's, I guess he started a uh, a new trend in publishing. It seems there's uh, with his Windsor McKay book now. Um, uh, Sammy Harkham is planning the next issue of Kramer's Air Got to be that size as well. So. Is it actually that that format size? The exact same size. Oh wow! Yeah. I knew it was going to be uh, a massive tome, but I didn't know yeah, the uh, will be. Well, the dimension. Have to be new kinds of bookshelves. <laughs> It's uh, dwarfed uh, your uh, early Acme's or the the I guess the novelty collections editions and the uh, and the Raws. They are deeply dwarfed. <laughs> so and just so uh, listeners know, uh, Chris is the uh, author of the Acme Novelty Library, which has a new book coming out in December, as well as a sketchbook collection. And Jeet is one of the uh, leading academics, I guess is a good phrase to put it, in uh, comics uh, opia. Yeah, yeah, it's sort of like being the uh, tallest building in uh, in Kansas City, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I guess I'm one of the leading comic scholars. And it's something we appreciate because you've uh, definitely, uh, with the uh, Walton Skeezitz collection, have gone full out in your uh, knowledge, in your uh, sleuthy ways of being able to investigate and uh, write up and bring about the information of these great guys, or the, the great talent. 
Hey, you know, can I say something? Shoot. Um, I can hardly hear Jeet. It's like he's turned into the incredible shrinking comic scholar. It's like, he's like an inch tall or something. <laughs> I, I don't know if this is going to be a problem unless you either want me to just, like, rudely interrupt him because I can't hear him or say things that he's already said because I genuinely can barely hear him. Here, let's uh, try... Yeah, speak- I'm, I'm, I'm having the same problem at my end. I can hear Robin very well, but uh, Chris is, like, kind of distant. Yeah. Can you guys hear each other better now? A little bit, yeah. I've got you pretty much, yeah, you're cranked up, so. This is live radio. Yeah, this is, unfortunately, the uh, perks of having a college radio station and being able to do the kind of shows that I want to do without any um, outside interference is the uh, limited facilities. Well, that's fine. All right, well, we'll do our best to be heard. Um, Okay, well, I guess I'll start out with, uh, who was Frank King? want to take that jeet sure yeah frank king was a cartoonist that in the um uh early part of the 20th century uh he um worked for the chicago tribune which um in terms of comic book history comic strip history was uh became the dominant um newspaper for comic strips uh in the early 20th in the very beginning of the 20th century you had the newspaper uh, new york newspapers like Pulitzer and Hearst that uh, were doing Crazy Cat and Little Nemo. But by the 1920s, um, there was a shift to story uh, comic strips that were more narrative-based and more about uh, ordinary life. And Frank King was very much a part of that. Um, he created a comic strip um, in 1918 called uh, Gasoline Alley, which uh, was initially a uh, sort of panel strip, but um, changed in 1921 when a lead character, Walt Wallet, discovered uh, the baby Skizek. And uh, then it really became a comic strip about fathers and sons and was, I, I think, really unique with, in terms of the um, fidelity with which it uh, um, displayed ordinary life in America. And a lot of people um, at the time really loved it for that reason. Um, over, over time, it's sort of gotten forgotten, and uh, the books that we're doing are an attempt to bring Frank King back into the limelight. Now, um, it's for you, Chris. This has been kind of a lifelong ambition: is bringing these collections out. Yeah, I, I um, when I was a, a uh, cartoonist at the University of Texas at Austin, where I went to uh, undergraduate school, um, I uh, first saw Frank King's comics um, at a uh, comic convention. I bought a, a big stack of them, and I'd never really read it before. And it was it was sort of a revelation for me because it was the first first strip I read where I felt that there was really a sort of soft and gentle mood communicated without sacrificing any of the more uh, kind of energetic and, um, um, I don't know, for lack of a better word, dramatic aspects of the comics medium. Um, and uh, I, I kind of just fell in love with the strip for, for, again, lack of a better, more articulate phrase. And... Um, tried to collect them wherever I could in the days before eBay, and then even in the days after eBay, tried to. And um, apparently Joe Matt was doing the same thing, but with an an ardor and enthusiasm um, more appropriate to his personality. (laughs) Um, Hmm. So this uh, this book collection, finally, when uh, Chris Oliveros decided to take on the, the kind of questionable and and massive task of reprinting all these things. Uh, this all comes from Joe's 
virtually complete and obsessively filled-in collection of, uh, of daily strips. But, um, yeah, personally, I, I, in a lot of ways, I, I feel, I, I don't know, like I, I got them, I feel closest to Frank King as an early cartoonist pretty much probably than any other cartoonist. There's something just about his, his very direct emotional warmth um, that um, really, I don't know, I'm very inarticulate. I should <laughs> I should preface everything I say with this. I, my thoughts just kind of trail off and fizzle into nothing. So I'm really bad at this. So anyway, uh, can I add something to what yeah. Chris just said? Um, uh, can I just very quickly? Can you guys hear each other okay now? We tried no. doing some tweaking. Oh. Not really, but that's okay. Whatever. It's like a yeah, that's okay. We, we, we'll say the same things, but <laughs> uh, I just wanted to add something to what Chris said, um, which is about um, the sort of. Frank King um, and contemporary cartoonists, because I don't think it's an accident that uh, Chris fell in love with Frank King, as did Joe Matt, um, as has sort of Seth and Chester Brown. I think um, uh, for a lot of these cartoonists who in the 1980s and 1990s were struggling with trying to do comic strips that were, uh, do comic books and graphic novels that were very honest and dealt with life and dealt with um, uh, what it means to be alive and, and not do genre work and not do uh, cliche science fiction or superheroes. Um, a lot of these um, uh, contemporary cartoonists um, uh, uh, were drawn to Frank King because he offered he offers a sort of model. He was somebody from the earlier early 20th century who did a, a vast amount of work, but um, whose um, artistic uh, intent in some ways really speaks to the moment. And um, if you look at someone like Chris's work or Seth's work, there's a real attempt to capture the ineffable, to capture quiet moments, to, to capture, you know, those aspects of life that are um, very subtle and personal. And you see that in Frank King. So, um, I mean, that's why for someone like Joe Matt, you know, in his pantheon of pleasures, it's like <laughs> masturbation is number one and Frank King is number two. <laughs> Right. Yeah, that's pretty much stating the obvious. <laughs> right. Jesus, well, I shouldn't even be saying anything at all because Jesus is so much more articulate than I am, and, and English isn't even his first language. So I should just hang up right now. Anyway. Oh, we have you on the air. We're going to keep you on. <laughs> um, well, now, I, anyway, go ahead. Sorry. In your like pursuits of the comic artists of the early 20th century, late 19th century, um, it seems like uh, Frank's work as you're saying, is a lot warmer and um, gentle than a lot of other stuff. Is that something he was kind of going into is like with the introduction of Skeezix was to try and do something a little different than the other stuff? I think, I mean, it's hard to say, I think, but I'm pretty sure that he was thinking along those lines because we've, through the, through the great generosity of Durana King, who was um, King's granddaughter, and basically the reason that these books have happened aside from Joe Matt's collection. Uh, Jeet and I have traveled down to uh, outside of St. Louis where she lives and spent probably a total of three or four days looking through her personal archives that she inherited from Frank King, which include probably, I was, I don't know, I can't say really thousands of family photographs, but certainly hundreds of family photographs and personal documents, including Frank King's diaries. And in, um, in one of them, when I was leafing through it, I found the phrase, um, well, now, of course, I can't remember it, but essentially it said something along the lines of um, thinking will will affect a few people, but a touch of the heart will affect millions. Mm-hmm. So I think that indicates 
I don't know where he wrote it down or if it just occurred to him when he was on the train one day or if it's a quote, but I think it's pretty clear that he was trying to, to do something that was... Oh, you guys still there? I knew I shouldn't have paid for caller ID when I got my <laughs> calling plan. Uh, um, no, they're just trying to fix the phone line so you're, you guys are louder. I've been writing, written down notes for the thing. Oh, um, that's loud. Anyway, I think that's if, in a very long-winded way. I'm just I'm trying to say I think it was intentional on his part somewhat. And I sometimes kind of wonder when I think about him, I wonder if maybe he was taunted a bit by some of his fellow cartoonists. Uh, maybe Sidney Smith gave him a ribbing every once in a while for being a little sentimental because he sometimes veered into some fairly... Um, sketchy emotional territory. He was very experimental, and there was a few strips where he, he he drew Uncle Walt's face really close up and tried to do these sort of um, chiaroscuro techniques of, of amplifying the facial features and sort of filmic techniques in a way, but not really. Like he was he was really trying to do different things and and create a sense of emotional empathy with the reader that I think a lot of other cartoonists probably would have eschewed if not made fun of so but i'm going out on a limb by well that's something i've noticed in the third book um was really that heavy use of silhouettes mm-hmm. and the black and white um was he like trying to experiment through the daily strips not just the sunday strips oh yeah i think actually there was, i think there's probably just as much experimentation in the daily strips and i think most cartoonists at that point knew that the daily strips were most likely to be read by adults and that the, the Sunday strips were aimed more at a, at a, at a child audience. Um, I think that that probably carried on well into the 40s or 50s. Um, and it kind of continues today, actually. So, um, and that's something we should actually mention for people, is that Gasoline Alley is still a running strip. But not in the paper in which it originated, though. I think the Chicago Tribune dropped it something like eight or nine years ago. To a hushed quietness yeah apparently so now um is it the longest running comic strip i don't think it is i think i, I think that cats and jammer kids is uh still running or ran until a few years ago so that's and I probably think bringing the up father is running too which may be the single most iconoclastically weird strip i mean even <laughs> blondie is weird you know but uh, I don't think it's the longest running. It's certainly, I think it may be the longest running continuing narrative or continuous narrative, if mm-hmm. you want to consider it that. Mm. At nearly 90 years, it's uh, definitely dwarfed anything else. Is, yeah. is Walt still there? He is. So that means about 135 years old, I think. So. <laughs> but Phyllis passed away a couple of years ago, if I understand her last year, was it? I think so. Wait, was it Phyllis or was yeah, it Yeah, Phyllis, Phyllis died a few years, uh, okay. fairly recently, and uh, but the rest of the ca- uh, cast, um, either the characters like Doc sort of fade away and aren't seen anymore, or they're still around. So Skizik is still around, and he's, uh, I guess, 90 or something like that, which is right. kind of weird. Uh, um, They've got really good health care plans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They must be Canadian. Yeah, right. <laughs> now, um... I just want to dive into the Sunday strips because those, to me, look, going through his work seems to be like the really most impressive. Where it just seems he just dives into there and just goes full out and does pretty much to his heart desire. Mm-hmm. Um, when did he start? Like, was the Sunday strips all along from the beginning, or is that something a point where he went, "Okay, let's expand this," or the paper said, "Hey, let's expand this." No, the, the daily strips predate the Sundays. The daily um, had been around since 1918, or is it sort of like a weekly panel and then a daily panel? Uh, but the, it was in 19, 
um, 20, um, right about two or three months before Skizik is introduced, that they started the Sunday. And I think the introduction of the Sunday has something to do with the fact that they were planning on introducing a baby because the Sundays, um, as Chris indicated earlier, were aimed more at kids, whereas the, the daily strips were read by adults. And so in the early Sundays before Skizik, you see Uncle Walt uh, playing with the neighborhood kids. And then once Skizik is inter- introduced, you have Walt uh, taking care of Skizik. So in a lot of ways, the Sunday uh, strips have to, um, came about because there was this idea of making Walt uh, not just a bachelor, but a father figure, and uh, introducing the theme of childhood, uh, which is also very dear to Frank King's heart. And I think that's perhaps one reason why in the Sundays it sort of took, um, he started to experiment and do stuff the way he did, because he was very interested in exploring um, what it means to be a child and what it means to grow up. And the Sundays allowed him to do all these, like, you know, wonderful tableau scenes uh, with balloons and circuses and, and traveling and, and, and also um, uh, these imaginative stories of where Skizik, you know, dreams he can fly or dreams he can go underwater. Yeah. When I picked up the first volume and started reading it, um, I couldn't... It was like 80-year-old jokes about cars. And it, 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 when I started, it was kind of a mystery to me, the appeal of the strip. But uh, I was just wondering, was it King's idea to introduce Skeezics, or was that something to do with the publishers? Well, there's um, maybe Jeek should answer this, since he's more articulate and knows the history better. But as I understand it, there's, a, there's sort of a story that circulated that Patterson the, um, at the Tribune suggested that he had a... That he had a a child to the strip, but I've also read that uh, it was King's idea, so that's not quite sure. I mean, it's not quite certain what the origin of it was. I don't know. What do you think, Gene? Yeah, I, I think that there's um, a couple of things to be said. One is Patterson was the sort of publisher uh, or related to the publisher of the Tribune, and he was at the New York Daily News, and he kind of liked to claim credit for everything. <laughs> so if you read these newspaper accounts, he's, he's Patterson is supposedly the guy that na- told Chester Gould, you know, let's make him uh, Dick Tracy rather than Plain Clothesman Tracy. And Sounds let's, like a Stanley type Yeah, character. he's a Stanley sort of figure. Uh, exactly. And, and whereas, like, from... So I kind of think that Patterson didn't have anything to do with it, and there's two pieces of evidence that we can kind of put forward. One is, even before Skizik is introduced, um, there are already children being introduced into Gasoline Alley. Um, the, uh, Bill and Amy had a child in 1920, uh, the year, year before, and, um, and Frank King himself, the second piece of evidence is, he was very interested in uh, um, childhood and child, because he and his wife had a son, Robert, in 1916, and from the moment Robert was born, King started introducing jokes into his work, into um, the panel he did called The Rectangle, about babies. So it seems like babies and uh, little boys and, and growing up were all things that Frank King was interested in. So I I'd... His, his, I'm sorry, go ahead, G. Oh, no, can you, you know, say what you have to say? I was just going to add in that his, that his his probably his most successful strip before Gasoline Alley, and he did a number of them was Bobby Make Believe, which was a Windsor McKay-inspired uh, strip about a little kid's dreams. And it's uh, a lot of the ideas in Bobby Make Believe then went on to be recycled in um, Gasoline Alley. But it was clear that King wanted to maintain sort of a tie both to his own childhood and I think also maybe uh, write about his own child's childhood because those strips started, I think, a couple of years, what, 1914 or something? Yeah, 1915, I think, yeah. 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 
And of course, he and his wife also, um, she, they, their first child was stillborn, which is a biographical detail that adds to the meaning of the strip somewhat. So. Which actually you, you cover quite uh, eloquently in the, um, was in the first book? Yeah. The, the research into there. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and uh, just to sort of add to what Chris has said, I think that there's um, two aspects to Bobby Make Believe and Gassinelli um, that are both um, worth paying attention to. One is that King, um, like a lot of artists, he kept going back to his own childhood because that's sort of the time in life when, you know, we're most creative and we're most, like, alive to the world. And, and he really, like, went back to his childhood memories as a source of inspiration. Um, and then later when he had the son, and there, there were all sorts of complications and issues um, with his relationship with his son, Ro- uh, Robert, but um, in some ways, Gasoline Alley is also a way of trying to reach his son or to make some sort of statement um, uh, about fatherhood and about the relationship between a father and a child. So Gasoline Alley um, was important to him, both as a sort of statement about his own memories of childhood and also as a way of building a bridge to his son, I think. Absolutely right. Now, Chris, as a cartoonist's point of view, looking at the relationship that he creates with his son, was there really any comparison for how he was able to develop this dynamic relationship between Walt and Skeezics? Like, that humanism to it, I guess. You mean comparison with other strips with, at the time? Or? Yeah. Well, I don't I mean maybe there is, but I'm not well as well-versed in the history of comics maybe as I should be, but I, I at least from my kind of cursory read of, of that era of comic strips, it seems pretty, pretty unique to me. I mean, it has a, it has a heart to it that other strips that followed it or came before it, strips like you know, Little Orphan Annie and stuff, just don't quite seem to have to me. It seems to be much more based purely on the family unit and how. I think really, in a lot of ways, what the strip is about to me is about how a human relationship becomes important over time in a way that's completely indescribable because you see Walt finds Skeezix you know the day that it happens and day by day he just becomes more and more attached to Skeezix to the point where Skeezix is his whole life to him and he can't imagine being away from him for any time at all yet when he first finds Skeezix he's kind of an annoyance you know mm-hmm. the whole strip as it builds in, in this sort of disposable medium of comic strips it just to me seems such a beautiful metaphor for really the way life unfolds in a way and then before you know it it's kind of over but then all that's left is just this feeling of of affection basically for somebody else so it's i don't know it somehow you, you just miraculously took this disposable medium of comics and was able to put that feeling into it and it be, it was it was really the core of the strip I, there's there's various experimental plots that sort of twine around that basic idea but the fundamental feeling of the strip going well up into the 40s, 50s, and even later was that, I think. So. Is a part of that the, the the artistic style, the rounded edges to his work, kind of giving it that warmth? I Well, I maybe very cursorily, but I think it's his writing more than anything. I don't... I, what I tried to say before about the mood of the strip, um, as a younger cartoonist, I was, I was under the um, misapprehension that the way to create a quiet strip when I was trying to do things that were more just about real life was to either draw more realistically or draw more softly or kind of smooth things over a bit, but it was Frank King's 
drawing that made me realize that that wasn't what you needed to do at all. What you needed to do was pay attention to the tone and especially the rhythm of the strip. And you could draw as bluntly and as and as flatly and and boldly as you wanted to. But it, it was how you ordered the pictures and and uh, strung them together that gave the strip its tone. Um, and I think that's, I mean, that really is what, that's like the most important thing that you can learn as a cartoonist, I think, at least if you're going to try to draw in that style. So, Otherwise, you can end up doing some very kind of uh, schmaltzy and, and uh, um, emotionally confused sort of storytelling. So, Not that I don't, but... Um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. There's a, uh, a couple of things um, that just sort of sprung to mind when Chris said all all that. Um, one uh, one is about the rhythm, where um, I, I think King um, had this like amazing sense of just um, uh, observing and sort of like quiet moments and like not forcing a punchline. And in some ways, the best sort of point of comparison would be Charles Schultz. Mm-hmm. Who I who was a fan of Frank King and who clearly had that say, a very similar sort of Midwestern s- sensibility, um, which is very different than the sort of you know New York or Los Angeles you know like um, uh, sensibility of a lot of other cartoonists who went for the big yucks and went for <laughs> you know um, the uh, sharper the line. Well, also I noticed like a lot more of the sharper edges where Schultz has like I was saying before that nice roundness. Yeah. To the art too. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, I think that the, I think that um, there's definitely uh, something there. And in terms of um, um, this quality of time that Chris mentioned, I mean, one thing we should make clear because not everyone will know this is that Gasignali was the first comic strip where the characters aged, and so Skizik is like. Um, uh, you know, a baby in 1921, and then by the later 20s, is a, a little boy, and then by the uh, mid 1930s, he's discovering girls, and you know, and then um, uh, by the late uh, early 1940s, he joins. He's in the army, so 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 really, the experience of reading the comic strip over 20 years is also the experience of living life over 20 years, um, and it's this amazing quality that comic strips have of uh, being a daily art form. You know, and they're consumed day by day, just as life is consumed day by day. Yeah. And um, in some ways, like drawing a daily comic strip is very much like um, keeping a daily diary. You know, uh, it's it's not like each individual unit doesn't amount to much, but they accumulate. Um, and then again, I, I think someone like Schultz is a good point of comparison. That like what makes Peanuts really great is not any individual strip, but the way that you know the characters add up and accumulate over time. And there's very much a sense. Um, there's a great new biography of Schultz that just came out, which really goes into his life. And if you read the biography and you go back and read Peanuts, you really get a sense that Peanuts was a daily diary for Charles Schultz. Um, And that everything that concerned him in life was also coming out in the comic strap. And I I think the same is true of Frank King. Like, I really have a sense that his... um, that um, for him, the life and the comics were one. Well, even in in King's diaries... uh he he would make notes about where he'd been or things that he'd seen, and on the the same page, sometimes right under it, he would have a note about what was going to happen in the strip, or he'd take a note about his wife Delia saying something, and then right under that, it'll say something about Uncle Walt. We should also add here because the, all of this stuff is so we're so mired in it, we probably forget that listeners might not know, but many if many of the characters in the strip, including the main characters, were 
based on real life analogs of of King's family. Mm-hmm. Uncle Walt is his uh, is his, is Frank King's wife's brother. So it was Frank King's brother in law, who was also his childhood friend. He grew up in Toma, Wisconsin, playing with Walter Drew. And um, and it, it, I don't know if this makes much difference. It was a younger friend too, which can kind of uh, I guess kind of have that like kind of brotherly little brother affection where that kind of role that he plays in the strip I see kind of yeah possibly right um, yeah that's a, that's a good observation yeah that's there's a real affection for Walt um, that Frank King had for both the real Walt and for the uh, the comic strip Mr. Walt. Wallet yeah hey, Walter Drew actually never married either he lived with William Gannon and Gertie Gannon who were also characters in the strip his entire life he was a telegraph operator so I think he was a I don't, I mean, you see pictures of him and you think, oh, well, he looks kind of not terribly eligible for marriage. I, you know, <laughs> he seemed like a very jocular fellow and seemed well-liked and everything, but he never um, never had a family of his own. And sometimes I kind of wonder if this was kind of King's way of maybe granting him one a little bit. And He became, I think, something of a, a bit of a local celebrity in Chicago. There's a, there's a film made by the Tribune to, to promote its publishing empire. It was I think it's 1925 where they actually filmed um, King's brother-in-law in a sailor hat looking like Uncle Walt with <laughs> with the real Bill. Oh, Pacing back and forth with his arms behind his back. Well, it's just a, it's kind of a brief shot. But I, I think it's possibly my... There was somebody who read the comics on the Chicago Tribune on the WGN when it was a... When it was a young radio station who read them as Uncle Walt, and I'm wondering if it was actually the real Uncle Walt. I mean, there's no way of really knowing, but... Um, Which was different than what I played earlier. Was the Yeah, uh, that was a much later radio show, and I think King sold the franchise to somebody in, either, I think, in the early 40s, which bears little or no resemblance to the tone of the comic strip that seemed like they were trying to turn it into sort of a situation comedy or something. But in a lot of ways, comic strips are the origins of radio and then television situation comedy anyway. One thing I noticed, um, going back a little bit, because we're talking about the daily, like, um, the, the you know, each year is a year, is one thing I noticed after reading six years straight of uh, Gasling Alley is that he doesn't handle things the same thing each year. It's like, it's his birthday, so we're going to do this for his birthday. It's like, uh, he's very careful to make sure, you know, you catch a part of that day that's a different part of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I guess the wedding, it wasn't just, here's the wedding, but it was like a part of the day in the wedding. Right, well, that's interesting, yeah. So I don't know if that was like a perp. I guess that probably was a purposeful thing. I don't know. Yeah, I would think so. I don't, you know, I think, yeah, I don't, you know, he's trying to capture the details of life, I think. And sometimes they seem very mundane, and other times they seem almost kind of overly or overtly plot-driven. And in some cases, like, the latter seems a little overbearing, and the strips, and I think Jeep very well articulated that in the second book where he talked about uh, Sidney Smith's influence on him, because at that time Smith was probably one of the best known, if not highest paid entertainers in America, and his strip The Gumps was sort of the standard by which all other comic strips were measured, and everybody was being influenced by the, the heavy plotting and sort of um, melodramatic uh, drama of it. And I think uh, King was probably affected by that as well, so... I'm wondering about um, the Sunday strips, the influence of that you brought in from other, um, I guess, fields of art, because the uh, one of the strips is where he goes to the museum. Walton skis says, "Go to the museum," and they kind of explore. Was it abstract? 
mm-hmm. ism stuff was that something he he was interested in kind of wanted to like share with people through anything or is it just his style he wanted to try exploring well i i mean i g can answer this well but i, I mean he went to art school in chicago um so I'm sure that at the time, though, it might have, he, I think he may have taken some somewhat commercial classes. He, he seemed to carry the lessons of art school, like carrying a sketchbook, and there are a few pictures that survive of him sitting in an easel, where I think he was probably fairly well-schooled in what was going on in, in fine arts. Um, and, I mean, it's tempting to, to imagine that the divisions between fine and commercial art were as, uh, as distinct back then as they are now, but I sort of wonder that maybe they weren't quite as much, perhaps, because a lot of even the, the Ashcan school painters like George Lukes started out as news, as newspaper illustrators. Um, uh, so I, I don't know. I think I think he was a well-educated guy. He read a lot. I know he was interested in Japanese art. He and his wife uh, decorated Japanese think, pottery and collected it. Um, but I don't know what to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the. Uh, I mean, I agree with everything you said, and I want to perhaps add a bit more to that, which is, um, yeah. I, first of all, like at the time, there was a lot of um, overlap between or interest, common interest between avant-garde culture and the comics. So you had um, uh, uh, Fine- Lionel Feininger, you know, who was um, um, a very much a modern artist, but who did comic strips for. Um, the Chicago Tribune in the early part of the century, and uh, you had um, was the big show that they had in uh, New York the um, that caused all the controversy in 1913, the Armory Show. Uh, yeah, the Armory Show. Yeah, so so the the Armory Show um, also had a cartoonist that was involved, which is Rudolph Dirks, who did the Cats and Jammer Kids. Oh, yeah, that's he right. had a, a painting in there, and um, I'm pretty sure that King and um, Claire Briggs and Sidney Smith went to the Armory Show because in 1913 they all did comic strips about modernism, and uh, and so I think that. Um, um, and there's a sort of a deeper affinity between the two because in a lot of ways what the, the modernists were interested in doing was to move beyond representation and to have art that's more sort of iconic. Um, and, and you have someone like Picasso who's like looking at African art as a way of like, you know, moving beyond representation towards uh, more basic images. And that's in some ways what the cartoonists were doing as well. So you have this very strange affinity between comic strip artists and um, and what's going on in modern art. And I think King's, the great Sunday page that you referred to really um, uh, illustrates that. In uh, but, but I mean, it, it, there's like all sorts of interesting tensions in there because in, in that comic strip, Walt and Skizek go to a museum and then they enter into the world of modern art. But uh, Walt in particular is scared because it's so frightening and different. Um, yet clearly King wasn't scared because he was aware of this art and he used it in his own strip. So it's a very interesting tension. Uh, well, and then later in his life, too, when he retired from the strip, he he did sculptures and painting and uh, just kind of kept to himself, actually. And even during the time he was working on the strip, his his notebooks were filled with ideas for odd little sculptures, and he even did shadow boxes and things like that in his free time. So. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that's right. I, I think that the one thing to emphasize about King as an artist is that he was... Um, uh, he's a real sponge. Like he really absorbed what was around him, and so you can see different things that he did. Where he's like looking at Windsor McKay and absorbing Windsor McKay, and he's looking um, at Claire Briggs and absorbing Claire Briggs. And then uh, the same is also true of like looking at Picasso and absorbing Picasso. 
And the the other aspect is that he was very restless. He he was never content to do the, you know keep repeating himself. But uh, you really see that he like you know is constantly fiddling with his style and and trying to like experiment. Um, certainly up until about like the late 1930s, uh, but but maybe even beyond that. I mean, I think it's really a fact about King that he had this sort of you know restless creativity. Well, yeah. <clears throat> I know. I noticed in particular in the latest volume, there seems to be more experimenting even with uh, the dailies, mm-hmm. the black and white dailies, mm-hmm. with the uh, impressionistic strips. Yeah, I think, again, he was really going for a, a very specific sort of mood there, or trying to extend the, uh, the possibility of, of feeling in a comic strip with those, those drawings. And they're really beautiful, too. He just had any... The amazing thing is they're not over-rendered or they're not fussily done. They're almost kind of just, if you see the originals, they're almost kind of tossed off in a way, but they work so beautifully because they're just, they're so shot through with uh, unpretentiousness. They're just so e- easy to look at. He's not trying to impress you, really. He's just trying to communicate something to you very, very clearly and naturally. It's, it's, it's the passion, I guess. I guess, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, and actually, I mean, the use of the shadows is really interesting, just because usually um, the people that are credited with bringing, you know, sort of shadows um, into comic strips are Noel Sickles and Milton Caniff, uh, who were supposedly influenced by sort of film and photography in the 1930s. But if you look at the latest Gasoline Alley Daily book, it's clear that already in the 1920s, um, um, Frank King was interested in this stuff and um, uh, was playing with it and in a lot of ways doing it better than I think Kniff <laughs> did in the 1930s. Yeah, because it, had a, it actually had an emotional content and a point to it. It wasn't, it wasn't just the look of, of the strip as a style. And also in the, in the teens in, in King's diary when, his, um, when, his, when Robert was born, he was going to the, at least in his diary, I think he said he went to the movies nearly every single day. And mm-hmm. I think it was clear that he was pretty aware that uh, that this was an art form that was was going to take over, basically. And I think he, he was very interested in it. And I think his his take on the cinema and his incorporation of of filmic techniques into, into the comic strips was sort of unique, actually. He wasn't just, like the later guys, he wasn't just imitating the camera framing and that sort of thing. He was looking at, at um, looking at it in maybe a different way in terms of his own art rather than just simply imitating it. But. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I think photography is probably the other big influence because he was a sort of, you know, like from a very early age, he was like taking photographs like crazy yeah. and, um, and really thinking about like what Photographs do, and the, I mean, the, to plug our own books, <laughs> we, we, we print a lot of these photographs in the Walton Skizek books, and they're great photographs, and they really show someone who's like thinking about the camera and the way it like captures light, and the, and you know how to stage pictures, and but also a lot of like candid photographs that are very unique for their time, uh, like that just capture uh, casual moments in a very yeah. easy way. Well, I think Jeet's introduction for the three books now is in excess of 60 pages. <laughs> so already there's 180 pages of illustrated biography for just the first three volumes, and this has been very intentional on our part because Jeet and I both felt very early on when we were talking about this that, that King's biography is is as important to the strip as, as not. And I think given the possibility um, after meeting Joanna King of reproducing all this stuff, I think 
we really wanted to make these books as rich as possible and to try to get as much of a sense of King's real life because he was referring to his own real life every single day in the strip. I think, um, I mean, it's, uh, we just want to make it as, as um, detailed as possible. So, And that's, uh, in the going through the stuff that, that Drew has provided for you is included in the journals, and I'm wondering uh, how much an aspect that has been and wh- what that's been like going through and studying, you know, this man's life well personally for me it's been great because you, as a cartoonist you have a lot you spend a lot of time by yourself and you start to really think you're out of your mind because you don't have any real analog other than calling your friends up and seeing if they feel as crappy as you do basically and to see see King kind of struggling with issues of procrastination or how he balanced his day out or how he would maybe start working on a strip in the morning and then not feel like doing it and then go out and shovel mud or rake leaves for a while just to kind of work off some energy and then spend time with his family is really I, it's just sort of, I mean this is a cartoonist about whom I knew nothing for almost 15 years of my life and any little scrap of information I could find I would cling on to to try to get a sense of what he was like and then now all of a sudden to be able to read his these daily journals was really pretty amazing I mean we reproduced some of them in the in the second book a bit and then also in this one and i think we'll do more but um, is there a point where you have to be kind of selective because you, you oh, yeah, get I mean, into we're being personal very, well sure i mean there's and there's things that drew has told us that she said that were sort of you know off the record uh, but she at the same time i've even i've even asked her a couple times i said look are we overplaying this element of his biography because the, the one thing that we really haven't talked about yet and the thing that i discovered about 10 years ago or so is that this Kathleen Alley is a strip about a warm father-son relationship. And yet I found out that King had sent his own son away to military school when he was about seven years old. Mm -hmm. So there's a biographical tension there that doesn't really make sense on the surface. Um, And in our discussions and talks and meetings with Joanna, she let us know in fairly clear language that King loved children and was loved by children but his wife was not of that cut of cloth in fact it was pretty much entirely her doing to send their son away um which when you know that and then you read the strip it's almost like adding water to a japanese paper flower it just suddenly kind of blooms and you know that detail it makes a lot of sense because it was and it kind of breaks the heart at the same time. Yeah. yeah, because in a way, the strip then becomes King's imagined life with his own son, who wasn't there anymore. And a lot of the, I mean, the the, the nemesis in the strip. The, if there's anyone in the strip who could be called a villain, it's a it's a woman who claims to be and is Skeezix's actual mother. And there's um, there's a, a tension there between the Walt of the strip and then the, the, the actual mother of the of the character Skeezix. So it's, it's, it, to me, it's just really interesting how King consciously and maybe unconsciously funneled these, these details of both his, his real life and his, his private emotional struggle into this strip. Um, and the more we found out about it, it just it makes the strip that much more powerful as a story, so... I'm surprised uh, 
with King being such a major figure and Gasoline Alley being such a long run, important strip in American cartoon history is why he hasn't this this hasn't happened before. Nobody's done tried to do this before. Well, I haven't either. I mean, I, I'm going to let G to answer this because he's really good at articulating the difference between the the strips that became popular, say like Buck Rogers and <laughs> Milton Kniff. But I mean, for years I wanted this to happen because to me it seemed like this was the real strip with heart. But it just kind of got swept under the rug. So uh, yeah, I, I think this is a strip about cars. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, to sort of answer that question, I mean, I think there's two factors. One is maybe the sort of copyright issue where, like, Frank King owned the characters Walton Skizek, but the Chicago Tribune owned the, um, the comic strip, uh, or the, name? The, the logo, the logo Gasoline Alley, the name Gasoline Alley. So King um, uh, did books about uh, Walton Skizek, children's books, which are very beautiful, but, you know, there was not a lot of incentive for him. Uh, or there might have been trouble for if you wanted to do the book, um, but but the other factor is just the way what com- what comic strips get reprinted, which Chris alluded to. Like um, a, a lot of what gets reprinted depends on fans, and for a long time, fan culture was basically these guys who grew up in the 30s and 40s and who loved Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon when they were little boys and then when they were older and had some money wanted to put out books about <laughs> Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers, which is all you know very nice and well, but um, when they were kids, they weren't reading Gaskin Alley because Gaskin Alley was for adults. And so um, this sort of, the dominance of fan culture has sort of skewed our sense of comic strip history that, you know, the comic strips that um, uh, get written about and celebrated are the ones that uh, um, uh, fans who have a taste for superheroes Hmm. remember. Well, Gaskin Alley was hugely popular at one point, wasn't Mm -hmm. it? Yeah, it was extremely popular. I guess that was before the mass marketing of uh, collected editions. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you really didn't get a lot of... You had a few reprints of comic strips in the 20s and 30s, but the real sort of push to have, you know, like um, archival editions didn't start till the 70s, you know. Yeah, and Gasoline Alley was pretty well passed over at that point in favor of other strips, you know. Yeah. To me, it just always seemed like it was one of the top five strips, but it was never really, you know... Mentioned, and that, you know, that's that's a shifting list too. Who knows in ten or fifteen, twenty years what the strips from the turn of the last century will will be remembered? It might be a completely different list. It just depends on mm-hmm. what lasts and what has emotional resonance and what has. Basically, it comes down to how much truth is in the strip. That's what really gives a work of art its life. And I I, I don't think it's going out on a very long limb to say that there's probably a little more human truth in Gasoline Alley than there was in Flash Gordon. So. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, no, no, and I, I think that the other aspect is um, to mention, which I already men- uh, alluded to, is the sort of what artists are interested in, because I think artists in a lot of ways invent their own ancestors, um, in a sense that, you know, someone like Dickens was once thought of as a popular entertainer, but because Kafka loved Dickens, uh, we now recognize that Dickens was a precursor to Kafka, and there's a dark side to Dickens. And um, the same is true in, like, in comic strips. That if once you have artists like Chris and Seth and Joe Matt working, then um, Frank King will loom much larger because we can see that there's a tradition, there's a, a, um, a genealogy. Uh, and in, so, yeah, and I think in some ways even maybe the rise of the graphic novel has made Frank King more accessible because 
once we put these stories together in a book, they, they read like graphic novels. They read like, you know, these, you know, year-long or two-year-long narrative. The longest graphic novel. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're coming close to the end of our time a lot. We have about five, six minutes left. Um, and I, I just want to get a little more props to the uh, Sundays collection going up, coming mm-hmm. out because we really touched a lot on the daily stuff. Um, now, the Sundays, I think it's 96 pages? Uh, yeah, maybe 104 or something. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Um, what was the, the choice and selection of uh, which pages were chosen for that book? I think, well, that was mostly Pete's doing, who's the editor, and then she um, weighed in with some very good advice. Um, Art Spiegelman gave in some advice, and I did a, a little bit. But um, a lot of it was, there's a lot of strips because of the, um, the Smithsonian collection, which is was sort of my Bible when I was in, in college, because <laughs> the strips I really liked the most were the newspaper strips, not comic books. Um, those certainly I wanted to be in there, and... Um, or just the experimental stuff, and it was more Pete's doing, I think, than than anything. So yeah, yeah. well, Pete, um, his earlier book was on Windsor McKay, and in some ways, this is meant to be a little bit of a sequel to that. Mm-hmm. So he had the sort of um, a choice of a lot of strips that have a sort of fantasy element uh, that take off from McKay. But I think we also wanted to include a lot of the strips that deal with the sort of um, uh, father-son theme, um, uh, which is so important. And so th- there was a, a choice of that. We also, like a lot of the strips, it had to be in there because they're so imaginative. Like he, one of the things that Frank King would do is he'd do a Sunday page where the entire page told one story. Like if you glanced at it, from, uh, it'd be an overview scene, and then each panel was broken down. So we wanted to include as many of those as we could because um, that was really innovative. Yeah. Uh, so, so I think those were the sort of factors that we weighed. Well, plus, I, I don't know. I, I think Frank King may be the only Sunday strip cartoonist to do strips about the colors of leaves. <laughs> that, that's something I was going to bring yeah. up. was the fall collections, which uh, we're doing this in October. Mm-hmm. Very appropriate time to be discussing it, because I don't know what it's like where you guys are, but... All the leaves are golden here. I should add, I'm actually under a tornado watch right now. Again? Again, yeah. <laughs> uh, in an odd bit of synchronicity, continuing to that, Vancouver is facing the end of some typhoon that ended up here. Wow. <laughs> it's apocalypse. Well, that's good. Well, at least when they take the core sample of our civilization a couple of hundred years in the future for whoever survives, there'll be lots of really nicely reprinted comics from this last few years. <laughs> <laughs> era. <laughs> Um, but actually, to mention those color pages, which I, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned, yeah, said that because uh, that is one of like the real hallmarks of King's greatness. That he had this wonderful sense of color, and it's very different than other comic strips, especially the Hearst papers, where the colors are loud and vibrant and like a circus poster. He really had a sort of sense of the subtlety of colors, and he was helped by that by the fact that the engravers at the Chicago Tribune were real craftsmen. And um, it was a Frank King. He always buy like a um, a bottle of whiskey for the engraving department. Actually, that was Windsor McKay. Oh, it was Windsor McKay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It works too. Actually, you did that a couple times for the printers at the at the Daily Texan in uh, in Austin. Mm-hmm. So that they work really hard at it. I really like printers. The times that I've met them, you know, they everybody likes to get booze too. So. Yeah. And you actually like went to Malaysia, wasn't it, to, for your most recent collections to kind of fine tune? I actually didn't. I went to China to, oh, okay. to when. The first two printings of Jimmy Corrigan were so so way off. I went for the third printing and tried to correct all the mistakes. But Pete 
Maresca, the publisher of, of Sundays with Walt Skizik, went to Malaysia to oversee the printing of all the pages, and he's done that for all of his books, which is why they come out so perfectly. Um, yeah, yeah, we should. I should mention, yeah, that very quickly. I, don't, I know we don't have, don't have time, but uh, Pete was really the sort of powerhouse behind this. And one reason why the Sunday books is so great is the amount of effort that Pete put into, like, restoring the pages. And uh, I mean, there's pages in there where he's put as much labor into fixing them and getting it right as King did in drawing them. Yeah, easily. Well, you were. <laughs> I'm assuming that you didn't have originals to work from. They're, well, they're, when you're speaking of originals in terms of Sunday strips, the original drawings were just the you know, black and white drawings. But these were all these were scanned from best quality originals. Some are from my collection, and some are from Joe Matt's collection. And Spiegelman has actual colored page, doesn't he? he had, yeah, those pages, though, when you say colored pages, those were actually colored by King 20 or 30 years after the fact for an exhibition that he had, I think, in Florida. Mm-hmm. So those colors are, were added by him. <coughs> Um, for the gallery wall, the few I think the few Sunday pages that survive that are actually colored or might have a, a single panel colored, those were used as a guide for the engravers at the time, and, and I think those were colored after they were photographed, just simply because there was no such thing as the Xerox machine back then. And it was simply easier to color the original art than it would be to try to redraw something. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's getting very technical there for your listeners. So. Oh, we have a fair amount of cartoonists that uh, tune in quite regularly. Well, that's so. good. I'm glad that civilization has, has progressed to this point. So. <laughs> <laughs> being, the world is being taken over by cartoonists and that's bad aim, weather. Of course. So. I want to thank you guys both for uh, taking the time out of your busy days um, to sit with us for an hour of uh, talk about Frank King. Wow, an hour. Well, that was. Uh, thank you so much for having us on. I really appreciate it. It was very nice of you. Yeah, it was, it was great. Yeah, no. And I hope someday to be as articulate and thoughtful as G here. <laughs> well, we all well, can't I have, have a, a PhD. Well, I hope of being as great a cartoonist as Chris, so. <laughs> well, and I'll just... Being nice. <laughs> well, thank you again very much, and, um, and um, good luck in the pledge drive. Oh, the, pl- the pledge drive's done. Oh, it is? Okay. Yeah, that's why I postponed to have you guys after the pledge drive so I didn't have to stop every 15 minutes to <laughs> ask for money. subscribers by the million. <laughs> <laughs> Surprising, actually, this show did okay for uh, for pledge drive for yakking about comics. I was surprised. We were giving away good stuff. Yeah, we, we, we had some drawing quarterly and fanographic stuff to give away to kind people. So, But I digress. Thank you very much, guys, and I Thank hope you. you both have uh, safe, uh, calm weather days. I'm... Um, <laughs> I'm looking forward to rafting my way to work after this, I think. Okay. <laughs> Talk to you later. Okay, okay bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Um, just once again, to remind everyone, that was uh, Chris Ware and Jeet here. Uh, Jeet is uh, currently working on his PhD, um, master cartoonist uh, academic, uh, who um, has done wonderful work on the Walton Skeezix Collections 3 uh, daily collections, as well as the new Sundays collection. This daily... The third volume of The Daily just came out, as well as The Sunday's collection. The Sunday's is gorgeous. It's massive, it's huge, and you'll love it. Well, that is the original size. Yeah. Well, yeah. These, I mean, it's, as a book, it's in fantastically large, but that's how they used to print them, the old strips. Um, I guess we're at the end of our time. Oh. Um, so thanks, guys, for coming on. Also, um, if you're interested, check out Walton Skizik's stuff. As well, both of them have been involved in the George Harriman Crazy Cat Collections, um, which I actually meant to ask a couple of questions about because I noticed in book three, they go to Coconino County, which is where Crazy Cat takes place. 
Oh. Yeah. So um, next week, uh, I'll be playing an interview I did with, uh, or Colin and I did with Mr. Brian Talbot. And uh, actually, actually, be only one part of the interview. The second part will be available online at inkstuds.com. This is CITR 11.9 FM. Up next is Crimes and Treasons. Now I'm going to end the show with um, a song, a sad song, because uh, Lady J, Briar Orridge, just passed away last week. She's the partner of uh, Genesis Pure, one of my favorite people, and she's been really influential in uh, kind of furthering his development and really, like, I guess his rock and it's really sad uh, when someone young passes away. Um, so I'm going to play milk Baba off the latest psychic TV album. Um, and any last words, Colin? Good night. Good night and good luck. Oh, and then before that, I'm going to play something funny. I got it at Stumptown. I think you guys will like it. Hi, this is Peter Bag, friend of Ink Studs, and you can catch Ink Studs on Wonderful What? C-I-T-R. Wonderful C-I-T-R.